Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the 25th, 2019, and this is episode 2407 of the Survival Podcast. Here's what we got up for you today on the listener feedback show for a Monday. There are limitations on how much you can do with tax reductions. I just got a question here on setting up an LLC and why it may not do as much as the person asking about it thinks it can do. Um, next question we have is on cold weather and gardening. Specifically, I just did a show on container gardening. And, you know, does container gardening work in cold climates? The answer is yes, but there are some considerations. Uh, question on preventing ducks from laying eggs in undesirable areas, in this case in a pond. Uh, the potential of pandemic and epidemic and the commonality of disaster and what that has to do with preparing for either one. Thoughts on monetizing a hobby with social media and why you may or may not be able to do that or want to do that. What the government can and can't do in controlling the use of a word like organic. Um, thoughts on who manages your investments and cover crop options in food forests and orchards. So good variety on the show today. Before we get to your questions, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast con uh, sponsor. When there was no one sponsoring the show, because we didn't have sponsors yet. When I wasn't even ready to take a sponsor, I got an email from Vic Rontala offering to sponsor the show. And honestly, at the time, we had like four or five hundred listeners, and I was like, no, man, I, I really I can't take your money for that. Because I don't think you'll get a return of investment. He appreciated the honesty and said, when you're ready, let me know. A few months later, we were up into the thousands of listeners, and I thought, we can, we can actually make a run of this. Now we're here with 200,000-plus daily downloads, and yet Vic Rontala is still with us more than 10 years later with Safe Castle Royal. They have everything you could need for your prepping. You can find it all at safecastle.com. Remember, loyalty matters. And guys, these, these folks are loyal. Another company that's been really loyal to us as a sponsor, KnifeKits.com. Going on like eight years that KnifeKits has sponsored the show. Uh, they have everything to help you get started with the hobby uh, of knife making. We're talking about taking hobbies and making income off of them. Knife making is certainly something you can do that with. Or it can just be something fun that you do to learn new skills and to enjoy yourself and make something truly unique. Or maybe a good project with your kids. Check out KnifeKits.com for all the ways you can do that. Remember, Safe Castle Royal and KnifeKits both have discount programs for the MSB members. With that, let's go ahead and jump on into your questions today. Uh, I am going to start off with a real quick uh, announcement and a little bit more about it than I gave you last week. I still am dealing with this crud cold crap, whatever it has been going on weeks now. Um, and my voice is still a little weak, but I really wanted to kind of point out this awesome new MSB supporting vendor we have, O'Meals, with a 20% discount. O'Meals is like a high-quality version of a military meal ready to eat, right? Uh, they have 11 varieties. They have chicken, beef. They have breakfasts. They have vegetarians uh, meals. And I was actually impressed. The, the one that kind of blew me away actually was the pasta fagoli, which is pasta and beans. Uh, and it had kind of this beefaroni type thing in a good way going on when my my grandson and I ate it. And when I when I tried it, I didn't even know it was vegetarian. I was like, oh, this is a veg like I was throwing away the packaging. I'm like, this is vegetarian. 
Because it sure tasted like there was beef in there. There was some sort of a you know a textured soy uh, vegetable protein crumble in there. And usually that stuff does not taste like meat. This tasted like beef. Um, that said, I still prefer meat for meat instead of textured soy. Uh, but if you can make textured soy taste good, you can make everything taste good. Uh, they have heaters in them, and I'm going to be doing some more things with them. I have an idea that I'll be flipping over to them this week. But you really should check them out. O-Meals, O-M-E-A-L-S dot com, O-Meals. Uh, great for your prepping, great for your bug out bags and things like that. Um, it really just an awesome, awesome way to have instant, hot, ready-to-eat food available. And they are now an MSB vendor with a 20% discount. Not some crappy five points or something like that. 20 points off, that's significant. Uh, one guy went ahead and ordered uh, a bunch right away, and he said, MSB membership just paid for itself for the year. So check out O'Meal's. I think you'll really like them. And uh, as always, if you know a vendor that I can approach, you think they would make a good fit for MSB, let me know. I'll take a run at them if it seems like a good fit. Uh, next up, remember, if you want to ask a question for a show like this, you just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Make sure you put TSPC in the subject line. And ask your question this way. Bottom line up front. What's your question? What's your statement? What is it? Return key a couple times. Then give me your details. If there's a link, give me that. And then give me your details, that type of thing. You'll be more likely to get on the air. All right, so this question comes in from Aaron. He said, can you offer a high-level opinion on establishing a sole proprietorship or LLC for a family homestead primarily as a means to offset costs against taxable income, specifically if and when could would this make sense? This is a question I intend to ask a lawyer. Uh, okay, I would agree with that. It's a tax attorney, by the way. But I would also like to get your opinion. We've just bought land, and we've been toying with the idea of setting up a business to run homestead expenses through as we develop the property. I understand you would need a business to eventually show a profit, but do you see it as a realistic strategy for reducing taxable income? Long term, I'd basically just sell enough to have a business just about break even, but the advantage would be the tax line. Uh, thanks for any thoughts, Aaron. Um, Aaron, I want to start off with something I, I really need to make sure that I'm clear about. When I talk about the tax advantages of business ownership, for that to be the case, the business needs to be a significant income generator. Um, sure, some little things can be written off in a little small-time, part-time business, what have you. But the real tax advantages, when we start talking about getting into the 90% of the tax code is how you get out, you know, is how you get out of the, what the 10% has you have, says you have to do. If you have like only set the business up for tax advantages, not only does that open you up to serious legal problems with the IRS, it doesn't really work. Now let's get a little bit specific here on what you're talking about. And I'm going to do the best I can, but Like, since I don't know what your revenue model would be, and I suspect even you don't, it's impossible to really answer this. But one thing I think you're thinking about doing here, you're just not going to be able to do. It's, it's not going to happen. Um, not the way you think it is, anyway. As you develop the property. So what I'm seeing is Aaron thinks, well, I'm going to put in a dam to water my livestock, and I'm going to deduct the cost of installing that dam. Wah, wah, can't do it. I'm going to put in a fence, and I'm going to deduct the cost. Nope, can't do that either. I'll push a road in, deduct the cost. Nope, can't do that either. I'll plant trees and deduct the cost of the trees. Nope, 
none of those things can be done the way you would think they could be done. Let's talk about how they can. Things like dams, swales, earthworks, roads, fences, these are all considered improvements to the real property. And as such, they are not straight-line deductions. They are something you can then basically say this is added to the value of the property and now you can depreciate the, the property over time, including them in the assessed value, the phantom value of the property. So they do create a deduction, but it's a very long-term um, deduction. It's something you definitely need to do with a qualified CPA, and specifically in the way you're talking about doing it, one that's familiar with agricultural uh, tax law. But those things, just nope. Trees, this is one that gets really, really gray. Is it an improvement? Is it an expense to a crop? Even if it's an expense to a crop, you cannot deduct the cost of the trees until you sell the first product of the tree. So, for instance, if a farmer plants corn this tax year, but we're to heart, that, that corn's a bad example. Corn this wouldn't, just wouldn't happen. If a farmer plants wheat in this tax year and harvests it in the next tax year, The year in which he planted the wheat and actually accrued the expense, um, you cannot deduct it as a tax deduction. Only when it's harvested, then it's deducted off the profit of that particular batch of seed going to that batch of wheat. This is why most larger agricultural concerns are not LLCs. They are, in fact, C-corporations. And that way they can set their own fiscal year end date so that they don't end up in that situation. That's one of many reasons for that. So... In the end, I just think you're probably going down the wrong track here, Aaron. What I would do if I were you is determine whether or not this is actually a business unit. And if it's actually a business unit, then is it worth the extra paperwork to take it and make it into an LLC? Or do we leave it? You had a good point. You could leave it as a sole proprietorship. It doesn't really change what is and what isn't deductible. Uh, LLC formation is more about protection of assets and some other strategic things you need to discuss with an accountant and a tax attorney for your given situation. But I, I just want everybody to understand, it's not like you can just create a business and just start making deductions. You really have to think about what you're doing and how you're doing it and where income is coming from. And you don't have to have profit. What you have to have is revenue. Businesses can lose money almost indefinitely. Um, there is a point at which if you, haven't, if you haven't made a profit after a certain amount of time, that you may have to switch that over to basically being a hobby. And you can actually end up in a bad situation where you have to report the revenue, but you don't get the deductions. Um, but there's, that's not even 100%. Again, this is you got to talk to an attorney about this. But I, I get where you're coming from right now is this doesn't work. And if you, want to, if you want the tax advantages of being an entrepreneur, then you need to build something that actually has revenue, and then you start figuring out how to dispose of money. We don't go into business for the purpose of creating tax deductions. They are a byproduct of that. And they flip things around, mostly for the money earned in them. Okay? So I want you to think about it this way. As an employee... You earn, pay tax, and spend in that order. As an entrepreneur, I earn, 
I spend as much as I can in the business. Then I take out what's left that I need to spend on things I can't justify in the business, and then I pay tax on what's left. If we only set up the business for the purpose of getting out of paying taxes, again, forget the legal issues. It doesn't really work, and that's why a lot of people don't get in trouble for it, because if they try to do it, it doesn't really work. There has to be some revenue model in there. So I know that's maybe not the answer that you were looking for, uh, but you actually had two great questions this, this period. So you get another answer. Maybe you'll like the other answer a little bit better. Um, what are the implications of cold weather climates on container gardening? Your show on container gardening got me more interested in this, but my wife and I live in New Hampshire, in the Upper Valley. I would think raised garden beds make overwintering harder because the wind hitting the side of the garden bed. Could you give your opinion on this aspect of container gardening? Thanks. Well, this is a big it depends. And when are we talking? Like, So first of all, you're not overwintering annual vegetables in New Hampshire. Right? That's, that's just not a thing. Right? You, you don't overwinter annuals in New Hampshire. Period. I don't care if it's in a garden bed in the ground. You're having to use some level of extraordinary protective measures to overwinter plants in New Hampshire. So overwintering is not even an issue. So then we start looking at, well, when it comes to the duration of the season, what impact does moving earth into a container have? And the answer is it will absolutely cool off the entire mass of earth that you're growing in faster. It will also absolutely warm up faster. So if we have a raised bed garden or we have a container, see now that's another thing, right? Now you're, you're taking, I did a show on container gardens and you're invoking raised bed, right? There's a container and there's a raised bed. They're not the same thing. And I, I think I even said that show, you can look at a raised bed sort of like a container, but it's not. And the reason it's not is it does have full earth contact. There's no separation. So that bed of earth does come up out of the ground, but the bottom of it connects to the entire earth, and it ties into that giant thermal battery. Right Now, it can dry out faster, it can warm up and cool off faster than if it were in the ground, but it's moderated a great degree. So I'm just going to ignore that, and we're going to talk about actual containers. So when we do an actual container garden, if we put that where it is hit very heavily by the sun in the early season, it will warm up faster. And therefore, we can get plants going quicker in it than if it was you know, than if they were in the ground. Again, though, by the end of the season, uh, unless we're getting good solar exposure to compensate for it, it will cool off faster, where that big giant earth has a lot more thermal battery and takes a lot longer, longer to cool off. But, as I said in the show, we can change that. If we are using any kind of, like, let's say we build a container garden and we build a cloach, which is basically a mini greenhouse for it. Well, that mini greenhouse is going to be able to push way more heat into the soil during the day than it can into the ground. Because if we're doing it with the ground, well, it has to dissipate across the whole earth instead of just this little container. Or if we're doing, like, wicking beds for our containers and we're recirculating water, whether that's aquaponics or we just have a big barrel full of water, right? We just have a big barrel full of water. 
We have a float valve in it so that it never depletes. And it just, just constantly circulates water for the benefits of circulation and to make fertilization easy. So, no, we don't have fish in there, but when we need, you know, iron and calcium, we just dump our supplements in the barrel. And it goes through the whole system. Now, if we're doing that, and in any way we're heating the water, then those beds will be able to grow earlier and later than in the ground beds. So how can we heat the water? We could heat the water by, you know, throwing an aquarium heater in it. We could eat the water by painting the barrel black and putting it in the sun. We could eat the water by building a small solar hot water heater, putting it up on a roof, and running a pipe up into it and back down into the barrel, and taking a second pump, a little small DC-only pump directly connected to a solar panel, and when the sun comes up in the morning, it starts pumping water. And it pumps through the hot water here. We control, we want it to go very, very slowly. We don't need a lot of power because the slower the water goes through, the more it will get heated up. And when the sun goes down and there's no sun to heat the water, the pump just shuts off. So now we're heating that water and maybe we're maintaining that water at 85 degrees when our average air temperature is about 45 degrees. Well, our plants are going to grow much more uh, aggressively than anything in the ground. So it all depends. What kind of container, where is the container located, and what are you trying to accomplish? So that's how you have to look at container gardening when it comes to colder climates. Not a blanket. Well, since it's a container, it's going to freeze faster. Well, what kind of container? How big is the container? Where is the container? What's the solar aspect? Are we running any kind of circulated heat through it? Are we doing anything to extend production? It's much easier to, let's say, build four big container gardens, and then have, let's say, PVC pipe, dry fit, that just sticks into the four corners of each one, and we drape uh, a clear plastic over them. And at the end of the, the season, or at the end of the period of time we want those cloches, we just use cheap painter's plastic, so we just throw it away. And we can either leave the pipes there, or we take them out, we number them, or letter them, A for your uprights, B for you know your horizontals, and we just bundle them up and put them away. Now, th again, doing that versus trying to do that with uh, in-the-ground bed, you're going to get a lot better results. So you can definitely extend the season with container gardens. You're just not overwintering anything with anything short of, you know, uh, a sunroom attached to a house or a Walpini-type greenhouse or something like that. Like, you, you're not overwintering any kind of conventional beds in New Hampshire. If nothing else, because they're going to be covered with snow. Uh, next up, Chris says, uh, I have about 10 female pecking ducks, and they have run of a six, in, six, six fenced-in acres with a quarter-acre-sized uh, pond. They have decent-sized shelter, but they have started laying eggs in the pond. How do I get them to start laying eggs in their shelter? Thanks for all you do, Chris. Well, Chris, it's a really simple solution. You might not like it, but it's simple. You need to cage your ducks in at night. Wherever their shelter is, um, and hopefully you've already done this, you need to train them that at night, that's where they go. So all their food should be there, and there should always be a supply of fresh water for them there. And either you can create a coop-like chicken coop environment for them, which... Um, 
and you live in West Virginia, that might actually be really good for them in the winter to be have a place where they can be totally sheltered. Um, or you just need to put a fence around them and have a gate. Just like I do, and you see it all the time on my, my YouTube videos. And then don't let them out till about 9.30 in the morning. That seems to be about the perfect time to let your ducks out. And you could certainly automate that gate so that it closes at night and opens in the morning all on its own. Um, I have found that ducks will lay about 80 to 85% of their eggs by 9.30 in the morning. Um, that is really taking into account daylight savings time because it's the t period of the year where we're on daylight savings time that that they lay the most anyway. So what, what that means is when you're on regular time, you're going to come back to about 8.30 for your time zone. And you might have to experiment. Maybe your ducks can come out at 9. Maybe they can come out at 8.45. Maybe they need to stay until 10 a.m. You know? Um, it's it, it is variable, I'm sure. But that's the number that's worked for me the best. I still do find an egg or two, you know, hidden under the deck, Uh, hidden in a kiddie pool. Sometimes we dump the kiddie pools and egg rolls out. I always throw those away. If, if an egg sits in duck poop water, it goes away. I just I don't trust the blimp to have not come off in that situation. But you'll get most of your eggs that way, and it's that simple. And if I, I sent you an email, and I didn't hear back, and I, I didn't want to wait to answer this one. So if you are penning them up and you're still having this problem, let me know more details on it. So my next one comes from Sean, and Sean says, I'm wondering if you could do a show or a segment on prepping for a plague or pandemic due to a virus. I know you don't do much on things like this. It's not your style. But in the past couple of weeks, I've noticed a stomach bug in my area spread like wildfire. I know people that are 1,500, 2,000 miles away experiencing either the same virus or something similar. I find this a little worrisome to see something spread so quickly. Thanks for everything you do, Sean in Maine. You know, I haven't really done a show on this topic specifically in a long time probably did a couple in the most recent period of time you know somewhere in like the 1200 episode area with doc bones i know i did a few in the beginning you know going back like in the 400s 500s i did quite a few shows about this early on in the first couple hundred episodes and there's a reason i've done the ones i've done on it if you said to me jack Name the top threat or threats that you think could cause a genuine, real, TV-style shit hit the fan in our lifetimes that are you know likely to, to occur. Um, I would say I have to go with two. I can't go with one. And it's either a total economic calamity. Call it a collapse. Call it uh, economic crash. What have you. But worse than... Anything we've seen, like let's say 70 stagflation or the recession of 08, 09. Worse than that. Way worse. Um, or a pandemic slash epidemic. And on, the, on both of them, I have to say, it's not if we have that happen, it's when. And I, w I would say if you said, well, out of the two, which one is most likely to occur in the lifetime of the average listener of the show? Economic collapse. There is there is a point where all of the fake voodoo bullshit is going to come to a head. 
it is going to happen, and it probably will happen while we're all still living, assuming we don't have an early takeout or something like that. Uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you fall over and die tomorrow, you probably won't see it. Pandemic, maybe. But sooner or later, I mean, it's a numbers game. Viruses mutate. Some of them mutate almost uh, hourly. And it, it, it it's... I'll, I'll give up a geek thing about me, right? A geeky, nerdy thing. Back in the early uh, 2000s, late 90s, I guess, I was a fan of a really stupid TV show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes, I am that much of a geeky nerd. And um, there was a concept in there that one of the vampires explained to Buffy the Slayer, right? That you can be perfect all the time. But we only need one good day, and you're done. You're dead. And that's kind of how I see viruses. We can be, our, between our immune systems and our safety protocols and our medicine, we can be awesome all the time. And all the viruses need is one good day for them, which is a very bad day for us. Something, and this is, this will be the most likely makeup of a virus that can cause this type of problem. It will have to take a relatively long time to kill and a fairly long time to go from the point of initial infection to incapacitation. It will have to have a high contagion rate during that time between contraction and being like laid up and then it will have to have even a modest lethality rate five percent ten percent huge huge and you're talking millions and millions upon millions dead in the first world if you get if, if you think of it like a slot machine and it comes up ding 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 ding, ding and it hits that way Countries like the United States, Canada, uh, the United Kingdom, France, Australia, New Zealand, millions upon millions dead. In the third world, tens to hundreds of millions dead. Why, why can I say that with such assurance? Because right now, like in a lot of third world countries, number one thing that kills people right now is diarrhea. Diarrhea. Like diarrhea is deadly in parts of Mexico. Because the sanitation is so bad, they can't deal with it. The medical apparatus is not in place to deal with it. So you get something that has like a 5% to 10% mortality rate of infected people in the United States. You're looking at more like in third world 25% to 50% mortality rates. Not everywhere 50%, but you're like kind of those are your numbers. Those are your averages. So then if that's all the case, then why don't we spend more time talking about it? Because it's the same thing we do for everything. So maybe it is time to revisit this, to talk about the actual risks, because what's good about shows like this, it lights a fire under people's asses to understand why preparedness is important. But in the end, we have six primary survival needs. Food, water, shelter, energy, health and sanitation, and security. Doesn't matter if the systems of support go down because of economic collapse, because of a coronal mass ejection taking out a big portion of the grid, or from an epidemic, pandemic.
It's the same thing. Now, there are certain things that we have to look at, like quarantine protocols, having the right medications and stuff like that, being prepared to self-quarantine. Uh, when I lived in Arkansas, and I guess right now we would probably use one of my outbuildings, and if it's hot out there, I'm sorry. Uh, I do have family members that if something like this happened, uh, I know a lot of you guys are like, man, you know, I have family that think they're going to come stay with me. Uh, I have family that actually would come stay with me. I would open the door to them. I would bring them in. But if it was something like this, there would have to be a quarantine period. In uh, Arkansas, I had an RV. And it was like, you know, if you guys come here, just know that's where you're living for two weeks. You live in there for two weeks, we don't breathe the same air. You're not sick, then you can come in. So you do have to think about things like that. But in the end, that's really what it's all about. If we ever end up with pandemic, epidemic, etc. being a problem, the only solution is going to be bugging in. That's it. And then once you're sick, then trying to deal with the illness and get advanced help if, if it's available. And it's the only thing that you will be able to do. And the government will very quickly, quickly implement quarantine protocols and put down a cap on travel. And people will scream and yell, it's a violation of your civil liberties, and I'm no friend of government, but that is the only thing you can do. If you end up with a highly contagious, highly lethal illness that is spread by human-to-human -human contact, the only way to get a handle on it is to say to everybody, wherever you are, there you are, and there you shall stay. And the smart person who sees this thing evolving Because it will not happen like this. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to News at News 9 at Night. Everything is hunky-dory. Hi, folks. Welcome once again to News 9 at Night. I know yesterday I said everything was hunky-dory, but now we have the viral flu of the zombies and everybody's going to die. It's not going to happen like that. It's not. It's going to be, well... Uh, Yeah, um, this, this, this flu looks different than the last one. Or this new viral thing we just found doesn't look real good. And it, oh, it's starting to spread. And it, now we have cases in America. And this is where you have to keep your head about you. If you think about what went on with Ebola, it sort of sounded like that. But what was true of Ebola is the numbers weren't there. The numbers weren't there in the third world shitholes in Africa where people were actually dying for us to freak out over here. But it did kind of progress that way. Like, it, here's this place that emerged. Now it's beginning to spread beyond those borders. And if you stay calm, don't overreact, you'll know the difference when it's something that is a credible threat. And then that's when it's time to start putting your own protocols in place, limiting your travel, and getting ready both the last physical preps you can make But the mental and emotional preps of, yeah, we're probably going to hole up. Now, I'm not suggesting that if that occurs, you, you go all in on quarantine, you know, when you're not sure yet. But, you know, if, if, if it looks really, really bad and it's, it's, you know, it's got a higher rate in Europe, then you might want to cancel that trip to Europe that year. I'm just saying, you know. But in the end, it, we'll do this again. And I think it's a legitimate request. But it, it still comes back. You shore up those six survival needs. You prepare to bug in. 
because that's the only thing that you can do in that situation. So next, I have a question here from Dennis. Dennis says, I'm getting a new puppy next month, and I want to start an Instagram page so people can follow her development. I've just recently been using Instagram, and I really enjoy it. I have a business that I own and run, so the dog training and dog sports is just a hobby, but can have a big price tag. We'll be doing dock diving and agility, and we meet new people in these sports all the time. Is there a way to possibly monetize Instagram without too much work, say one to two hours a week? This will help offset the cost of trials and training. I often spend between $150 to $200 each weekend for trials, not including the classes. Thanks for any help you can provide, Denny. That's actually really complicated, Denny. That's really a hard thing to do. And I'm not saying you can't do it. But I'm saying it might be harder than you would think. It might actually be easier to build a really big business based on dog training and Instagram than to build one that makes a couple hundred dollars a month. And I know you'll probably point out and say, Jack, but you've always said that to get to making $2,000 a month, you have to make $200 a month first. And then when you get $2,000, then you can make $20,000. And that's how it progresses. Yeah, but that's when you're trying to actually really grow it into something significant. I know people that make good money on Instagram. I don't know anybody that makes a little bit of money on Instagram. I'm just saying. Now, I know people that have full-time committed businesses that do Instagram and could say a little bit of money comes in and it makes it worth doing Instagram. I, that's not what I mean. What I mean is someone that's like, we just have a little hobby business on Instagram makes us $200 a week. I, 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 I don't really know that you can do that one to two hours a week. I know um, one couple that makes about 300000 a year. And their primary revenue driver is not their revenue model is not on Instagram, but their driver of their revenue is Instagram. Uh, but they work like crazy. People think it's easy for them, but it's a business like any other business. The type of monetization you're talking about, and I'm not sure that it can be done in your niche, but it's more like a YouTube revenue model. The thing about YouTube, it's small money, but if people watch your videos and you turn on AdSense and you display ads, you get paid. And if you put out a video and that video gets watched a year from now, even if it's only a penny for that view, you make that penny. I have, for instance, a video on my YouTube channel. It's one of my most successful videos. And if you go to Google and search um, why my DeWalt batteries won't charge, you'll see why. You'll see why I'm so successful with that video. It's a stupid little minute and 30 second video. And it talks about how when DeWalt went to uh, the new style batteries uh, instead of the old uh, nickel metal hydride batteries, um, they left this installed base. There's you know millions of us uh, without like a heads up. To, hey, we changed something. We changed something. See, and a lot of people think it's a stupid video. I get lots of ignorant comments on it because they're people that they never used the old tools. So for 25 years, I used DeWalt tools, 20 volt. And uh, I would take my battery and drop it in the charger. Battery would charge. Okay? No problem. Blink, blink, blink. It's charging. Fast blink. It's too hot. Certain signals, ah, it's a bad pack, whatever. But in the end, you just took the battery and dropped it in the charger. Well, the lithium batteries, right, they click into the tool. 
Well, they also click into the charger. But if you set them and drop them in the charger the way you did for 20 years, sometimes they charge, sometimes they don't. What they usually do, they start charging, and then they fail. So when I figured out that was what was going on, I made this little quick video. Well, turns out the wall has a big problem they want to address. And so there's, you know, 100 people a day at least, based on my estimates, Googling that question, finding my video. They watch my video. I make a fraction of a cent. But that video alone makes me a couple hundred dollars a month. And that's really the, like, so... I think if you want to make small amount of money, you need some sort of a monetization. Now, I'm not saying you can't do that with Instagram. I'm telling you, since I'm new to the Instagram platform myself, and since my model is based on a full-time business, that I don't know what you can do that with Instagram with. But you have to have something like that. Or, you know, can you offset your expense another way? You know, if you can get enough eyeballs on you, can you make a deal with a company that provides, let's say, pet food to be, like, your sponsor and, like, to basically feed your dogs for you? So now they eat free and that offsets. I, I really don't know what the answer to this is. And I'll tell you the honest truth is I haven't done enough research into how people monetize their Instagram. The couple I mentioned that makes 300 grand a year, they monetize exactly the way I do. They have a membership site. I just don't know that you can get much traction with a membership site with only one to two hours a week of effort. So I think that... Now, here's what you may be able to do, Dennis. You may be able to... Let's take your idea of two hours a week and put it on the shelf. Let's work really, really hard to build up a customer base... And let's get the number where we want it. And then that system's kind of in place. And then we can kind of back off and just post to Instagram. That might work. But, I again, I, I know people that make a lot of money on Instagram. I know people that are very popular on Instagram, can't figure out how to make a dime. I don't know anybody making like a couple hundred bucks a week. If you are, comment in the show notes and let us know about it. I'm sorry I can't be of more help, but that's just the most honest answer that I can give you there, Dennis. Next one comes from Marty. Marty says, how can government make it illegal to use a word? We've been on farming organically for the past four years. We're now in the process of becoming certified organic. Filling out all the paperwork, paying the fees makes me think what I'm really doing. I'm paying for permission to use a word. I understand why certification exists, to give customers some assurance of how the food was grown. But when your product is local... Your consumers can literally come see the food being grown. Why can't we say the word organic to describe our practices? How does the government have the authority to ban a word unless you pay to use it? Thanks, Marty. Well, in one instance, I would say this is an example of, of overreach of government power. The government makes a lot of things illegal that are patently absurd that are illegal. I don't want to always go here, but to me, drugs, but specifically cannabis is a perfect example of that. Here's a plant. It grows in the ground. Man has used this plant in various ways for thousands upon thousands of years. But you can't grow it. You can't possess it. You can't eat it. You can't sell it. 
You can't touch it. You can't be found with it in your possession, or these bad things will happen to you. And yes, I know there's been a lot of legalization efforts made, but they come with a tremendous amount of red tape and bullshit and bureaucracy as well. When in the end, this is a plant. No plant should be illegal, yet government's done it. However, the, the, the organic thing, they can't quite do what you're saying they do. The government can't prevent you from using the word organic. What they can prevent you from doing is claiming that you are an organic provider or that your product is organic if it would be taken by the consumer to mean the same thing that it means when any other actual USDA certified organic producer says that. They're protecting the label so the label has meaning. And there is some reason for this. Now, I'd rather see it done by third-party organizations, right? And, you know, and if it was, that would be great, but it's, it's not. And the government really has no business here. But there's nothing that would prevent you from saying, we use all organic methods in our production. That's perfectly legal. That's perfect. We use all organic methods in our production. We consider our process to be beyond organic. No problem there. It's when you label the product as an organic product that sets the expectation by the consumer that if I go to the store and I buy a thing and it says certified organic, you're claiming equivalency. So as bad as the government is, as much as I like to wail on them, I don't actually have a problem here. The reason I prefer a third-party certification would be it would eliminate the issue. We're organic. So, who says so? Well, this organization. Now I have to decide... Do I value their opinion of what that word means? The pessimist would point out that, well, you know, Jack, that doesn't really work out in a lot of other places. Look at grass-fed beef, for instance. What does grass-fed beef mean? You know, grass-fed beef, because there's no real control yet anyway over that name, can mean that that cow at some point ate grass. What does free-range chicken mean? You know, I could have a chicken house of horrors and a little stoop outside of it that, you know, maybe 5% of the chickens at any one time can even fit into, but they get outside there. I call it free range. Or it could be, you know, cage-free. What's cage-free mean? Cage-free means a great big chicken house. Chickens can run around, and they're not in individual cages, but they can't get out of the house. Right? There's so many ways that... Marketers take these words and are disingenuous with them. And I have to say that while I despise the state in all forms, protecting the organic label is something they've done relatively well if I set my expectation at what I expect from government. So I expect government to be an abysmal failure in almost everything that it does. And... So what I might give a private organization a C- minus for, I would then say, but factoring that you're government, you get an A-, minus, right? So it's about a C- minus performance if this were a private entity, third-party certification process. But since government's doing it, I'd give them an A-, minus because, you know, it's, it's like, you know, you're giving them, you know, extra points because they're special. Seriously, Right. Um, and it doesn't really, in my opinion, it doesn't really impact the ability of a local producer to sell locally. 
And if that's what you're doing, you may not even want to do this. Dorothy and I went through this mental exercise when we were running a duck egg business, which we did for about three years, and we, we, you know, we ran about $40,000 a year in revenue with. And so it was, a, it was a significant business. And what we decided was, what do our customers care about? And one of the things we had figured out is we had a feed, non-GMO, non-soy feed, but it wasn't organic. And we would have to have found a different feed and finding one that was also not soy and had the protein requirement that was readily available to us would have been really difficult. So we, we, we started talking to our customers, and we realized that only about one in 20 people even asked us if we were organic. And we said, we don't do certification with the government. Here's what we do. We couldn't find that it cost us a single customer. We'd have a single customer that said, you know, if you're organic, I'll buy from you. But since you're not, I won't. And when we couldn't find that, we just didn't care anymore. And we did exactly what you said. We told people, if you want to know what we do, come see. Come see. Now, you can't just show up whenever you want. But, you know, if you come at 4 o'clock on Thursdays, I'm usually done by then. And I'm not going to spend four hours with you. But I'll show you where the ducks sleep. I'll show you the ducks doing what ducks do. I'll show you where we pick the eggs up. I'll show you how you store them. I'll show you how my wife processes them. And most people said, ah, that's fine. They didn't even care anymore. What they wanted to know was what were the animals eating and how were the animals treated. And I think once you do that, then you're, you're golden. So if I was doing a produce business, and I didn't want to go through the crap of being a certified organic grower, I would just simply say we use all organic methods in the production of our food. We don't use anything that would be considered non-organic. And then I would actually meet that commitment. Do what you say and say what you do. And I'd go on with my life. The government being able to do this, though, is an issue for me. It is an issue for me. See, I don't think that anybody should be able to claim ownership, whether it's the state or a third-party entity, on a common word. What does organic mean? It contains carbon. Any thing that contains carbon is an organic compound. If you take a knife and accidentally, you know, uh, you know, shave your finger, like you're whittling a piece of stick and that piece of skin flies off your hand, hits the ground, that is organic. When your dog takes a shit, that is organic. A Monsanto soybean covered in glyphosate is organic. It's organic because it, it is a, is a, it contains carbon. That's what the word means. Now, if you were able to see, this is where I think the lines blur. You should be able to say I'm an organic producer. And if this was third party independent, you would. And that just means, as far as I'm concerned, I do all the shit that you would have to do to be called organic in the way that you mean the question. What? The government actually is doing is saying you are a USDA certified organic producer. And I think even the state being able to say you can't say that unless you are 
is fine. I don't have a problem with that because it works a lot like any third party. Let's say I had the Spirico Institute. And the Spirico Institute founded the organic gardening and farming production methodology. And we defined all these things over here are icky, geeky toxins. You're not allowed to use them. All these things over here are good to go. You can use them. We publish that data. And you say... We are a certified organic grower under the Spirical Institute. And I make a little logo, an S with an O and a superhero thing around it or something, you know? And then that can go on your label and you say, Spirical Institute says we're organic under their definition. Nobody should be able to do that if we haven't said it's okay. If they haven't applied to our process and qualified with us, they shouldn't be able to say that. They should be able to still say they're organic. And if... Paul Wheaton comes out with the Wheaton Labs Organic Certification Protocol. And he says, Jack's crazy. He says you can't use this thing, right? And I say you can. And he says you can't do this. And I say that thing is okay. Then there's no problem with you failing my certification, passing his, and saying we are Wheaton Labs Certified Organic. Right? Now, to be fair to Paul, his, his program would probably be stricter than mine. So reverse it. But you see what I'm saying. It is the consumer, when you're making a claim to me, has a right to know what you mean by that claim. And if you just say, in my opinion, I'm organic, okay, then it's up to me to say, well, what do you do? How do you do it? Do you use this thing? Do you use that thing? How do you make that determination? And then I have a free choice. Either you answer me my satisfaction, and I don't buy from you, or, or I buy from you, or you don't answer me, and I don't buy from you. That's, that's simple. Where we got into this mess was when people abdicated their responsibility to government. So now when people see the word, they have an expectation, and government says we have a responsibility to make sure that that interpretation is met. So it's a long answer, but... I mean, the answer is the state shouldn't have 90% of the power that it has. But in this case, it's, it's, a reasonable, it's a reasonable system if you look at the totality of the systems that we live in, I guess is the best way to put it. Next up, Michael has an investing question for me. He says, Jack, can you see any advantages or disadvantages to opening a Roth IRA company with the company that currently manages my 403B account. Thanks to you, you jerk. I recently paid off my student loans five years early. Hooah. I'm planning to direct the automatic monthly payments for my student loans to a new Roth IRA account. Are there any reasons to prefer to have the Roth with the company managing my 403B or to open an account with a new company? I'll be meeting with an advisor with the current company to discuss options but I'd like to collect the info beforehand. Thank you, Mike. I'm going to do my best here because I don't know everything on your particulars, Mike. I'm guessing you're a teacher, right? Because 403B is basically a 401k for teachers. So here's my only concern about the whole plan as in total. Um, depending on how much you're investing in your 403B and how much you make, are you eligible to do a Roth IRA? And the answer is probably yes. 
you know, and how much can you can contribute, and as long so figure out what that is based on the law, and, and see that because there are limits to how much a person can defer into 403, 401, and IRAs. Um, as far as the company that's currently managing your 403b, so let's 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 do the Jack Crystal Ball thing, and how did we get this company managing our 403b? Our teachers union and our local school district, for one reason or another, decided that so-and-so company would be the company that does 403Bs for us. And uh, then, you know, Scooter, who is the guy that you're probably going to talk to, so I just call him Scooter because they hate it when you call him Scooter, and I like him to hate me. Uh, Scooter got lucky. Scooter has been with the company a while, maybe he's successful. So Scooter got assigned your district or your individual school, just the same way a guy that comes out and talks to you about your 401k and a, a different type of employment, you know, he's a scooter that got assigned that way. So you just got this company and you just got this guy because somebody else decided it. So is there any reason to not use them? Well, maybe. I don't know. Most likely there's no reason not to use them. So... You have to decide, first of all, am I going to self-manage this? Am I going to autopilot manage this? Am I going to basically say, yeah, I just kind of want the same kind of allocation, et cetera? So here's the thing. It doesn't really matter you know, who manages a Roth IRA account. Because unless you actually have a money manager, which these people are not, um, they're just a company. So I guess... My question for, from them would be, apart from whatever fees are standard to whatever fund that I choose, what am I paying you? And how do you get paid? And so if you find that what you're going to do is select your own funds and just deal with whatever fees come from these funds... And there would be additional fees for them to manage something for you that they're not really managing. That means they process paperwork and send you a statement. Then you probably don't need them and you're probably better off just opening your own account with like E-Trade or Ameritrade or something like that. Put your money in there and buy the funds as you see fit and self-manage it. Because they're not going to manage it for you in the first place. If they're set up so that basically they're written into the fees that are in the funds, and some are, or that any associated cost of this account is minimal, then there's no real harm in using them. But my next question is going to be, how how will you manage your account under these people? Will it be as easy as E-Trade? Let's say that you decided that you wanted to put 10% of your Roth IRA uh, right now, You just say you'd been doing this a while, and something happened, and the silver market takes a hit. And Jack gets on the air, and Jack goes, "Guys, look, I'm I'm buying silver right now because this is stupid cheap. Like this is some weird thing, and this is an opportunity." And you say, "You know what? I agree with Jack, and I don't necessarily want a long position with silver, but." I, I think this is a short-term opportunity, so you wanted to go buy the ETF SLV. And you just wanted to buy that because, like, silver went down to something stupid, like, 7 bucks. And you're like, I think in the next six months, silver's going to be 10 bucks again. That's a 30% gain. 
I'm going to take 10% of my portfolio and roll the dice. And if it goes up to 10 bucks, I'm going to dump it. I'm going to pay no taxes on it because it's a Roth. And then I'm going to roll that money somewhere else. Like, well, can you, do you have that flexibility? Can you do that? Because when you have a company that's supposed to be managing this, that also manages your 403B, you may not have that flexibility. Is this going to be a guy you have to call him and explain that you want this done? Is he going to try to talk you out of it? Right? So, like, you have to decide, do you want somebody that's actually going to advise you? Or do you just want to start putting this money away and control it? And are you going to have online tools to be able to make these decisions for yourself? Or is he going to do everything for you? Because here's my problem. I have worked with money managers, which is what I do now, and I have worked with these types of investment people. These types of investment people are not money managers. They fight you. They tell you not to get worried, not to get out of the market. They, they don't want to do things that are like kind of opportunistic. Their advice is usually shit. Money managers say, hey, Jack, guess what? There's a great opportunity in silver right now. I'd like to move 10% of your portfolio there. In fact, I already did, and here's your return. You got to have a lot of confidence to have a money manager, right? Or you self-manage, or you kind of have these people that basically just put you into a bunch of funds and tell you you're great. So that's how you're going to make this determination. It's not really about the company itself. What do you want out of it? And to me, you're probably doing a good contribution to your 403B, right? So with your Roth, you may want to start being a little bit more active. Now, that said, even taking your entire student loan payment and plowing it in there, in the beginning, it's not a lot of money. It's not a lot of money. So ease, ease here might be, yeah, let them do it. Pick four funds and just have it automatically go in every month. And as it builds up, what you want to know is, is there any issue? If I decide I want to take control of this, how long does it take? What's the process for doing this? And it should be like 48 hours and boom, it's done. What would actually happen is you would open a new Roth IRA in something like E-Trade. And then you would liquidate everything in that existing one to like some sort of cash value. And you would just flip it from one to the other and then reallocate it however you want it. That would be most likely the case. When you do it again, no tax implications because it's tax deferred. Uh, it's just it's tax exempt when you're into a Roth. So hopefully that makes sense to you. My gut is I would do this on my own. That That's my gut. Let's take another one. Okay, so last one of the day is a orchard slash permaculture type question. It says This is from Jerry. He said, I planted 19 fruit trees, apples, pears, plums, and peaches. Awesome. Uh, what are some good companion plants I can plant between them to keep the weeds down? I guess like a cover crop. I leave, live in uh, Michigan Zone 5. Uh, the trees in the ground for three years now. Thanks for getting me motivated. Jerry, Jerry. Well, okay, my number one plant that I'm going to suggest gets paired up with anything perennial is comfrey. And I would get a hold uh, of a bunch of comfrey cuttings. Uh, Marsh Creek does an MSB discount. I just got a great email from somebody. I ended up deleting it this morning. I should have saved it now that this came up. Uh, but they were talking about, you know, they bought, I think, 35 cuttings. They ended up with, like, 50. And then, you know, they propagated those. And they ended up with, like, 80 plants, right? So they're little compared to some other comfrey providers as far as the size of the cuttings you get. But, you know, comfrey grows fast. And in your climate, it'll do really, really well. Uh, the soils you have there, too, especially. And especially if you're irrigating your trees. So I would say that, at minimum, when I plant a tree, I want to plant a comfrey plant. Now, um, 
This also has to do with do you have livestock. If you come here, you'll see awful little bit of comfrey on my property because my ducks eat it. right? So since they ate it all, I don't have a lot. So I would like to do that. So just know if you have ducks or geese, they will eat it to the ground. They really will. But your growth rate up there might be such that you can get ahead of them. Uh, anyway, you might have to keep them out of the area until you get established, and then you can stay ahead of them. Um, but comfrey, definitely. The other things I would recommend, and it depends on what are you really looking to do here. Do you want a cover crop? Do you want to chop and drop? Do you want to build organic matter? Do you just want to keep the ground covered and keep grass back a little bit? If that's the case, then I would look to clover. I would look to Dutch white, New Zealand white, strawberry O'Connor, a mix of perennial, annual, and biannual clovers would be my main go-to in there. If you want to do more with building biomass and getting more of a nitrogen yield to your trees from legumes, then I would look to more of an ongoing cover crop that we plant you know, in spring, and then we cut it mid-season, and then we cut it at the end of the season, and we re-sow going into the fall, and we re-sow every fall, and we re-sow every spring. And if you're going to do that, then you want something that makes lots of biomass and chokes out those running perennial grasses, which are really not good for trees. Trees would be happiest if you look down at the, tr the trunk of the tree and out to almost the drip line, if you saw bare dirt. That is the ha Your tree would be happier like that than any other way, honest to God. And the, with the root crown visible. And you see like the, the dramatic flare where the trunk meets the ground, that's perfect. Most trees are planted too deep. Six inches, ten inches too deep. Where the roots flare out, you should see the top of those roots flare out. The problem with the bare earth method is that nature pours a vacuum and something's going to grow there. So we're better off controlling what grows there. I would look to things like, depending on the season, right, You know, Austrian winter pea, pigeon pea, etc. I would look to plants like Caius oat, uh, vetch, purple vetch, Caius oat, bell beans, favas, things like that. Lots of mass. And then the oat is a grass, but it's not a running grass. It's a clumping grass. It grows a lot like mondo grass. Big, huge clumps, big, huge roots. And those, and it's an annual. So eventually it will die and those roots rot in the ground and they are just an incredible feed for the worms and good for your trees. And since it doesn't run, it grows where you plant it and it doesn't really crawl and crawl up onto your tree and make it unhappy. So you want to try to keep the area just around the root zone as clean as you can. Here, you know, the Bermuda grass is what it is. I try to choke it out with mint. And I just, the trees have to do what they have to do. If you can manage that, though, you'll be a lot happier. And then my last plant that I would recommend, and I recommend this for everywhere, daikon radish. Daikon radish is cheap. It grows like crazy. It loves your climate. And it puts a huge, deep taproot into the ground. And every year, it'll die. And when it dies, earthworms will eat it. And spreading daikon radish in your orchard you can get like $5 worth of seed and spread that out. You know, that's a pound, thousands of them. 
and they'll grow, and you can take some to eat, and you can take, I've talked about it before, when they flower, they put little pods on it. They look like little pea pods. And you can pick those pods, and you can eat them fresh, and they taste like a really mild radish flavor. I'm not a fan of radish, really. I love those. You can put them in salads. You can stir-fry them. They're great. And then when that root dies, the top of that root will be almost as big as like a, a post hole digger. And it'll go a foot deep. And worms will come and eat it and poop and make worm castings. So ask yourself, how much would you pay somebody to once a year come to your 19 trees and dig 500 holes with a post hole digger and fill them up with worm castings? And if somebody would do that for $5, would you have them do it? That's what Daikon does. So that's the mix I'd look to. A mixture of perennial clovers, uh, annual clovers, annual uh, legumes, and some sort of an annual you know, wheat, triticale, oat, barley. But I just don't think you can really do a lot better uh, than Caius Oat. And I would probably say, like, you want a program that kind of favors those things as a spring, like right now, sow that stuff. And then going into fall, you want to sow more winter hardy, like Austrian winter pea, um, uh, Merced rye. It's probably the most cold hardy rye there is. That'll take the place of the oats. And if you keep that going, and then whenever you feel you need to, go in there and mow or you know scythe or whatever. Just crop that. And you'll build massive fertility that way. And in time, you will outcompete your native grasses, which is the bigger problem. And as your trees kind of get up and build that canopy and put more shade down, that'll knock back things like, you know, your, your Bermuda grasses and stuff like that and will favor a lot of these other plants that we talked about. So, Jerry, that's, that's the, the, uh, the route that I would take there. And I have to say I'm a little bit jealous, man, because your climate uh, and your soil types are really excellent for that type of an orchard and uh, should do really well for you. And just real quick before we transition to the end of the show here, um, Peaceful Valley Farm, who does a discount for us as well in the MSB, uh, has an orchard and vineyard cover crop seed mix. There's two of them, and they're both kind of a legume oat mix, and you can't do badly with either one of them. Uh, they sell for about a dollar fifty a pound, right? So um, it's inexpensive. The, the, there's the negative, right? Here's the others. The others shoe dropping. The reason they're so affordable is they're very heavy to the the Caius oats, and the Caius oat is really cheap. It's like one of the cheapest seeds you can get. So I think what would make sense is Use that as your base and then determine for yourself, you know, I want to up the bell beans. I want to up the vetch, whatever, and, and you know, make adjustments with additions of those. Just because the nitrogen yields from the legumes are, are so advantageous. And if it was, if you said there's one, you know, pick one, like if you're going to buy five pounds of this mix and I want to buy two pounds of one other thing, what would you add to either of these? Vetch. Plain old purple vetch. It is just one of the most fantastic plants, and it will crawl. It'll crawl right up on your trees, and it won't hurt them the way grass does. 
It'll shield them from too much sun in the summer. It will die back. It will leave huge yields. It's a good nitrogen crop. If you scythe and compost some of the scything, it's great for that. That would be like my number one thing to bump up in either one of those mixes. And I have a link to the page with those two mixes in the show notes today. That brings us to supporting the show the easy way, and that is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And every day I have an item for review for you as well. And uh, remember, you can get all this stuff in my daily email, by the way. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click subscribe there. You fill out a form. Once a day, you get one email, and all it does is here's the item of the day, here's the show's live, here's a video I put out, whatever. No spam, no nothing like that. Uh, but the item of the day today, I just brought this product around like two weeks ago. So I'm not going to say a lot about the product itself. It's the Lodge Carbon Steel Skillets. So why am I bringing it back? I got an email today from somebody who said, hey, you know those Lodge Skillets you recommend? The big 15-inch pan with the, the, instead of the long handle, it's got the two handles, like a big paella pan that's like almost 50 bucks. Yeah, it's on sale for $35. Oh, so I went and bought one. I've been wanting to add one of these, but like, you know, 44, 45 bucks, something like that. Like, it's pan, uh, 20% off. I'm like, well, not only am I going to buy one, I'm going to tell people because I don't know how long it's going to be on sale. I was excited because I was thinking, well, maybe, maybe they're all on sale, right? Like the, the, all the pans, the eight, the 10, and the 12 too. They're not. Uh, that would have really made it worth bringing out, but I've wanted one of the big 15 inch pans. For a long time, and at 35 bucks, consider the 12 inch pan is $39. It's a deal. So I brought it around today just because if you've been wanting a really great, really big carbon steel pan, now's the time to get one before the sale ends. And again, I don't, it doesn't say like for one day or two, it doesn't say that, it just says sale price. And boom, there it is. So you might want to get one now because I haven't seen these things, I've never seen that pan marked down. Uh, so before I even did the item of the day today, I went and ordered one for myself. And I'm really excited about getting my hands on it and doing some more cooking with them. Uh, as a whole, if you guys have listened a long time, you know I love me some cast iron, but I almost never use it anymore. I am almost 100% on the carbon steel train at this point. Once those pans are seasoned, they are stick-free. They heat up faster. They get hotter. Yeah, they don't hold the heat as long, but that doesn't matter because you're done cooking, right? Um, I have gotten so much better results that most of my carbons, uh, my, my cast iron is very lonely now. It probably is time for me to start rehoming it to people who are just enamored with it because I am so blown away by the Lodge Carbon Steel products. And I would say that, like, people say, like, you have to season it in a the pre-seasoning that Lodge does on these things is as good as anything you're going to do yourself. Just start cooking with them. And the longer you cook, as long as you take care of them, the better they get. Check it out. Lodge Carbon Steel Skillets available at tspaz.com or the survivalpodcast.com. And just you know, scroll down. Remember, if it's at tspaz, I own it. I spend my money on it, or I wouldn't recommend it. And no matter what you buy, if you just start at tspaz, you help support the show and the work that we do. All right. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. We are in kind of a, a, a spiritual week, songs that are kind of a spiritual nature. And we're leading off with one of the all-time greatest bands of all time, Queen. And this is called The Prophet's Song. 
And uh, it was originally written by a Queen's guitarist, Brian May. And he had a dream about the Great Flood, right? Noah's Ark type thing. And, you know, the Great Flood is one of those things that many religious traditions have. And he said that he wasn't trying to push any religious agenda on anybody. Um, it was just like something he saw and then he invoked. And as an artist, you pull these things out of, you know, myths and legends and, and, and religion or whatever. But there was one thing he was trying to convey in, in, in the song, one real message. And it was that in his dream, people were walking on the streets trying to touch each other's hands, desperate to try and make some sign that they were caring about other people. So when the shit was really hitting the fan, people were trying to basically demonstrate that they cared. And the, the biggest problem that we have in life is that people don't care about others. They don't reach out to others until you really need it. And so, you know, so there's just fire and brimstone type stuff in this song, but what it's really about is reaching out to your fellow man. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Listen to the man, man, listen to the man, man, listen to the man, man. 